Welcome to the Fast Forward Podcast. I'm your host, Patricia Keating, Executive Director of Tech Manchester. This series is dedicated to the challenges that keep entrepreneurs awake at night. Today's episode is all about intellectual property. And before you switch off, don't. It's one of the most fundamental issues that will be facing your business. Banks are now starting to lend against IP, so it has a real value. So businesses need to understand their assets, what they're worth, and how to protect them. So today's guest is the man in the know, Policy Officer at the Intellectual Property Office, Ian Sterrett, fellow Northern Irelander, so subtitles will be available. And he's here to tell us what you need to consider. Ian, welcome to the podcast today. Hi, Trish. Thanks, uh, thanks for asking us. <laughs> no problem. So listen, before we get stuck in, let's talk about you and your background, um, because you, you haven't had a, a traditional career. And I know that you cut your teeth in a startup called SatNav. Uh, yeah. Tell us a bit about that. <laughs> So I, I tend to approach intellectual property from a completely different perspective than most people because of my background. I take pride in the fact that I'm not an intellectual property lawyer because my viewpoint is that intellectual property is a tool rather than a piece of legislation. Uh, and that comes because of where I've come from. I'm somebody that's actually been an implementer of intellectual property and a creator of it. I started my career with uh, Philips Electronics right in the early days whenever we were actually trying to launch SatNav. So I was a guy with the responsibility for launching SatNav as a commercial operation within the UK. And that's when you're trying to sell something nobody realizes they want for a price that nobody wants to pay. And how do you create a market from that, uh, you know, from that basis? Over the years, then, I've been involved in lots of different startup businesses, both within large companies and small, whether it's mobile phone technology, whether it's software, whatever it might be. And eventually I was running my own consultancy business, uh, consulting on intellectual property and innovation strategy um, for about 10, 12 years. So involved in a lot early stages of how you go about creating businesses, where you create value, how you get market traction, how you get finance to make that actually happen. And within that context, what on earth has IP got to do with it? You've had a real personal journey in learning about intellectual property. And, you know, we hope that by spending some time with you today, we can help accelerate that learning for, for newer entrepreneurs out there. So let's start at the top. What exactly is intellectual property? Oh, no. It just sounds sleep, like a big scary oh. word. Yeah, don't <laughs> stay tuned, folks. Uh, it does sound scary because it, it tends to be propagated by the fact that it is underpinned by legislation. And it's underpinned by legislation for a very good reason. And that is because an organization like the Intellectual Property Office its remit is to try and make sure that the inventors in this world are the ones that benefit from their inventions. So fundamentally, intellectual property should be about the exploitation and the commercial benefit you get from good ideas. So let's go back to the basics as to intellectual property, the two words. And the easiest way of understanding it is swap the two words the other way around. So it's any property that is intellectual in nature. So anything that's created by creative thought. So whether you've created an invention, clearly that's a unique invention, so that's intellectual property. Whether it's the way that you've actually created a piece of music, so Paul McCartney is very fond of intellectual property. He owns all of the uh, copyright and, and lots of the Beatles tunes because he was the one that created it. People would take photographs, the way they frame those photographs, 
adds value to what they actually look like, and hence there's ownership in the photographs. So intellectual property generally falls into one of five categories. It's either something you've invented, something that uh, looks a certain way uh, as, a, as a unique sort of design. It's in the, the name that you call things, how you actually create a brand. It's in the stuff that you write or you photograph or you make or you produce. Or it's in some sort of know-how that only you really understand and you don't want to tell other people how you actually do it. So those five different categories of intellectual property, not all of them have got a legal basis to them. Some of them you need to register in order to own them. Others you own by default just by actually creating them. So we as intellectual property office, what our remit is, is to understand what all those categories are, how people are creating value, and then how do you make sure that the ones that create that value are the ones that really end up commercially being able to exploit it and gain the advantage of that. Because if we don't find a way of encouraging people to gain advantage from what they've created, then people stop inventing. Mm. It drives innovation. It drives innovation. It's right at the core of innovation. So there's lots of good statistics that show that people that recognize what their intellectual property are, are the ones that create their higher value jobs, are the ones that create the most sustainable businesses, are the ones that create the greatest economic value within the economy. So from a business context then, it sounds like based on those five categories that everyone has IP, would that be, would that be right? <laughs> it's a phrase I love to ask, is, is, you know, out of the five and a half million businesses that are in the UK, what percentage of them actually own intellectual property? And generally when I ask that question, the answer tends to come back, oh, about 10%, 15%, etc. And actually it's not true. The truth is 100% own intellectual property. Why do you think that is though? Why do you think people, what are they thinking when they A lot think of the time what they're thinking of is they think that intellectual property only applies to inventions. And they've heard of things called patents, which mm -hmm. is the intellectual property right to protect an invention of yeah. how things actually work. And the truth is, you know, only about 10% of businesses are actually creating inventions per se. Yeah. And the patent isn't the intellectual the, property, is it? Well, patent is the intellectual property piece of paper yeah. that goes with it. But when you start to define intellectual property as anything that is creatively produced out of, out of thought, and you start to think, well, what, what am I going to call my next product? Or what, you know, how do I create a brand that people mm -hmm. actually recognize? Then you start to see, well, if that's intellectual property as well, mm -hmm. then clearly that applies to all businesses because everybody's got a name. And that's actually the most common piece of intellectual property that people don't understand that is intellectual property itself. So everybody has it. Everybody but has it of one form or the other. Yeah. But so, so what? So we all have it. Like what's, this is a very tough subject and it is quite dry. <laughs> so why should it matter? What, what should founders be thinking about? To answer that question, let's look at it a slightly different way. Pretend that you've been a founder and you founded this sort of business, say 10, 15 years ago, mm -hmm. and it's grown and you've made a big success out of it. And now you're faced with a situation where you've decided it's time I pass this on. I'm actually going to cash out on this. I'm going to sell the business on. I'm going to do an exit. Yeah. And I'm going to find a trade buyer or a venture capitalist or somebody that is actually going to buy this business and take it on now to, to another level. Then one of the questions I say is, so what's your exit pitch? We always hear about people with a pitch for investment. Mm -hmm. Think about a different type of pitch. Which is, and now I'm pitching for somebody to buy my business once it's successful. Which is the assumption of all entrepreneurs. You know, exactly. you're, you're built, you start a business because you want it to be successful, because you, be you want to make a load of money. So the question is, how do you define what that success yeah. looks like? And the easy way of defining that success is to decide, well, what's my exit pitch? Because that's me effectively saying, this is where I've created value. Mm -hmm. And you start to say, well, 
look at the customer base that I've actually got. Look at the reputation that I've actually built. Look at the relationships I've got within my supply chain. Look at the customer databases that I've actually got. Look at the processes by which I'm adding value that's different from all of my competitors. Look at my USP itself. Look at what I've actually built as a business. Here's what I define as my business. And a lot of the time when you define business, it isn't about, well, this is my buildings and these are the vehicles that I actually own, Mm -hmm. or this is the computers that I've actually got. Those are all what the finance people will call tangible assets, as in they could be sold even if the business didn't exist Mm. and you could realize some value out of it. But if you start thinking about this exit pitch and think about, well, which of my assets are intangible type of assets, you start to realize the bulk of the value is actually in the intangibles. It's who you are, it's what you do, it's the relationships you've got, it's the reputation you've created, it's the processes you're following through. Mm -hmm. There's a really interesting statistic that says if you look at 1975 with the seven prosper 500 biggest companies in the US, the accountants classified their asset base at that stage as the intangible things only making up around about 16%. Industry has changed radically in that period of time. Now you can actually set up a business in your bedroom. Yeah, with what we've got in this room, we could set up a business. Exactly, we could set up a business. You know, there's lots of examples of the guy who created Minecraft, you know, in, was it Norway or Sweden? So he created Minecraft, and within five years, he sold it to Microsoft for $2.5 billion. What did he sell? Well, it was all that, you know, the customer base that he actually had, mm. the, the value that he created, the reputation he's built up. So all of that value was in these intangibles. Yeah. And one of the interesting statistics that we pick off now is if you look at Save and Prosper in 2015, as opposed to 75, that, those percentages are completely flipped. And now you get to the stage where 84% of the value of those 500 biggest companies mm-hmm. are in their intangible assets. And not only that, but over half of those intangibles are covered by one form or other of intellectual property. So if the value you're trying to create as an entrepreneur is in this stuff that is a bit ethereal, yeah. then the way of landing that is to recognize that you can actually translate that into some sort of legal framework yeah. and own those as proper assets, which means you're then able to actually sell them, you're able to trade on them, and you're able to prevent potentially some of your competitors trading on them, yeah. or you're able to license them and make other revenues associated with it. So intellectual property isn't really the framework legally to protect, it's a framework to exploit. Mm. How are you going to leverage that? Does that give you a capability that's of interest to the marketplace? What is that capability? Really interesting. <laughs> I'm sitting here just going, yep, yep. <laughs> but despite all of that, um, you know, the opportunities that it sounds like that sits within intellectual property, it still doesn't, uh, whether, does intellectual property have a branding issue where it doesn't inspire entrepreneurs? So like, it, so it does typically end up being issues that prompt founders to think about. Sometimes, yeah, usually it is. Yeah. Because unfortunately, intellectual property is one of those things where Everybody thinks it's, it's possibly of importance, but when you've when you got your head down, trying to get the cash flow happening day by day, trying to figure out where the next sales are actually coming from, mm-hmm. trying to figure out whether you've got enough resources to deliver on the sales that you've already made, mm-hmm. those are immediate issues which are important to the business, otherwise you haven't got a business. But intellectual property, unfortunately, you won't die tomorrow if you haven't done anything about it, and that means it's put on the back burner. And quite often it's put in the back burner until it's too late. Trick is to actually understand what it is that you're trying to do as an overall business and then what role these sort of intangible type of assets have and build that within your overall business plan so you know that you're creating some sort of a competitive advantage. 
you know that if you're creating some sort of know-how that is your competitive advantage, the people that are using that day by day, they should know not to tell the competitors about it. Because guess what? As soon as they tell, then you haven't got your competitive advantage anymore. Mm. So if they're not even aware that those are intellectual assets or what processes they should do internally to own them and to steward them properly, then what you can find is some of your competitors have learned all of your secrets, gone around, created their own skunk works, and five years after you thought you had a world-leading advantage, you haven't got a world-leading advantage any longer, you're completely out of business because the competitors have taken over, just because you haven't stewarded mm. your most important assets. So you know, if you lose, if you're out there sort of trying to make new sales and you lose individual deals, okay, that is going to impact the business. Yeah. But if in the background, there's somebody undermining the whole of the foundation of your business without you even realizing that's going on, yeah. then the whole house of cards can come down just like that if you haven't protected yourself appropriately or if you aren't stewarding those resources appropriately. So how can you protect it? We get it. We get it now. It's terrifying. But it's I think, terrifying. Yeah. I think, and I think there is that piece to it. You know, we, we started this off saying that, you know, intellectual property is fundamental to your business. And well, quite often you it can, is the business. Yeah. And it, but I think there's, a, there's maybe an, a lack of awareness around that, that that's really yeah. what that's about. But if once we've grasped that kind of principle that, you know, what your intangible assets or your ideas or your processes are actually the biggest value that you've actually built, how can you go about then protecting it? Because there's lots of different ways to do that, right? So the ways you go about sort of stewarding and protecting those are dictated to a certain extent by what type of intellectual assets you have. So the okay. five that I mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. you know, if you've got an invention, yeah. the best way you're going to be able to protect the invention is by filing a patent associated with it. And that tends to be the sort of the absolute gold standard. People say, well, you can't patent software. Yes, you can patent software if it is something that actually would be a technical invention. So, you know, things like artificial intelligence. Yes, you're going to be able to patent artificial intelligence if you've created an algorithm or a process within artificial intelligence or a way that the machines will actually learn what's going on. Mm-hmm. Well, you don't want to tell everybody how that actual algorithm works, but you can patent that and get that protection associated with it. But by patenting it, don't you have to actually reveal? Yes, but the that's algorithms. quite deliberate. Yeah. That's quite deliberate. Because one of the or things that we act, the reason why patents reveal is in order for other people to take your invention and be able to invent something else based upon it. Okay. Um, so, so back to in- innovating. Sorry? Back to driving innovation. Exactly. So, you know, if, if I keep it as a secret and just go away and actually do something in a, in a little sort of cabinet and then suddenly come out with this product and everybody says, oh, What's that? If I haven't patented it, then if they could find out how I did that, I haven't got any way of protecting myself. The secret's out of the bag. The Pandora's mm-hmm. box is gone. If I go ahead and preemptively put that in the public domain by a patent, which is exactly what it is, but that actually describes exactly what the invention is, then the government's contract, and this is what a patent is, patent is a government's contract to underwrite legally your ownership and ability to commercially exploit that exclusively as a monopoly for 20 years. So if anybody then copies it, once you've patented it, you can take them to court, take damages against them, say that they've infringed your intellectual property, and you've got the full force of the law behind you to actually do that. We'll come back to costs <laughs> in a minute because there's, there's two sides to that, isn't there, in yeah, terms of the application it. and then the defense. But 
Um, so patents is is one of the patents is one ways of them. We to, mentioned you've got we, a thing. We, yeah, we mentioned brands, etc. Yeah, those are covered by a piece of intellectual property legislation called trademark patent mm-hmm. uh, trademark uh, act. So you actually register your trademark again with the intellectual property office, and that means you can exclusively be, be the owner of that trademark. If anybody again decides that they want to parade as you or use your name without your authorization. Then again, you've got legal recompense to go back to them and say, nope, sorry, here's my piece of paper issued by the intellectual property office, shows that I'm the legal owner of that particular piece of property. Mm-hmm. So you need to cease and desist anything that you're actually doing. You're clearly trading on my reputation rather than creating one of your own. Mm-hmm. The passing off, is it? No. Uh, that's a slightly different piece of legislation, but right. it's, a, it's the same sort of ilk. Yeah. Uh, and in effect, then you can get awarded damages for what caused you commercially to what you're actually doing. But one of the most important things of a, of a registered trademark is effectively you notifying the world that you have that brand. Yeah. So please don't come and park your tanks on my lawn. And <laughs> because if you do, don't be surprised if I then do something about it. And that can be, that can be on words as well as logos. Words, logos, sounds. Think about when you open your computer and the Intel chip. So that little tune is a trademark. Right. Colors, think about things like uh, purple for chocolate. Think about orange for telecoms. You know, all those colors can be trademarked. Uh, you can even do smells. Not very many of those around. Certainly. <laughs> can you give us an example? <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, Hollister, probably the Hollister uh, smell. Possibly, yes. Probably yeah. the Hollister yeah, so smell. So when you walk into the store, yeah, you smell the you smell store so brand. Yeah, their their ability to use that in the context of a retail environment mm-hmm. is something they may consider actually creating as their trademark. Yeah. So you know, once you've actually registered your trademark, then that that effectively is your legal protection that stops anybody else actually utilizing it. And you sort of think, well, yeah, but some of the big boys, you know, I can't stop some of the big boys actually stepping on my toe and deciding that they're actually going to trade under my name, surely. Mm-hmm. So there's a great example from, uh, it's actually fairly recent, from, from three ladies who set up a brand for uh, high-end leisure wear. So it's a brand that they actually called LDNR, Londoner. Mm-hmm. So these three ladies in 2015 decided to create this very top-end brand. They then created a whole clothing range for you know, fitness, which would be really exclusive. Yeah. And they trademarked LDNR as being their, their brand name, registered it, got it assigned to them. So less than three years later, there's a little company called Nike <laughs> who decided that they would uh, create a brand themselves and they created a brand, LDNR, to represent the Londoner. They spent 10 million quid in launching this brand. They had Mo Farah. They had uh, loads of people behind the actual campaign. Yeah. They launched it, and as soon as they launched it, then our three ladies said, oh dear, now we're in trouble. And one said to the other, but we've registered it, so surely they can't use yeah. our registered trademark. Because it's obviously in a direct same category. It's in the same category. You know, the whole of their campaign was on all of the clothing that they actually launched as Nike. Mm-hmm. So surely, surely we're going to be able to do something about it. When it eventually went to court, Nike lost. And the reason Nike lost was because six months before actual start of their campaign, 
it was shown that they had searched the trademark register, they had identified that this trademark was already in existence, and despite the fact that they knew that it was in existence, they carried on. Interesting. Now, the interesting thing is, if, they, if those three ladies hadn't registered it, mm -hmm. they would have had a real fight on their hands. Well, there was nothing to fight. There was very little to fight. Because it was registered, it was obvious who the legal owner was. And you could say that it actually worked to their benefit because Best they effectively marketing. had 10 million quid's worth of Nike advertising campaign <laughs> on their little unique brand. Yeah. <laughs> and the subsequent, um, you know, and the court subsequent case after. Court case that went with it. <laughs> exactly. So, you know, how much does it actually cost you to own a trademark? About 400 pounds, is it? I Less think. than that. I did it for Weedy. Yep. Yeah. So yeah. it's possible for you to create... I think it did multiple categories, yeah. I think is what it was. So if you, if you create a, a single name, I want to register that name against a single category of products or services. You know, clearly if you, if you are, if you've invented polo as a, as a, as a, uh, a mint, then clearly that I totally went straight to horses there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, un it's unlikely that uh, you're going to confuse that with a car bought from Volkswagen. Correct. So, you know, there's different categories of products and services. Yeah. There's something like about 43, 46 different categories. So you need to decide which of those categories is what you're selling into. And then you register your name against an individual category. That costs 200 quid. You can do it online yourself. You get 30 quid discount if you do it online. So effectively it only costs you 170 quid. Mm -hmm. Now, you could use an intellectual property attorney to help you decide how to go through that process, but actually the process is pretty straightforward. It is. Yeah. If you want to add in all the categories, you think, well, I want to use also in that sort of services, then it only costs you 50 quid for each of those extra categories. So there you are. They effectively turned over a 10 million pound advertising campaign for a couple of hundred quid. And when you say, well, the value of my business is in my brand and the reputation I create, well, for a couple of hundred quid, you can create the legal framework yeah. from which to trade. I think it's really important uh, to sort of highlight that it is, it can be, the processes are really, the IP office have made them as simple as possible yeah. and as low cost, as administrative cost, really. Um, yeah. But that is an objection that you get from founders is that they'll say well, it's too difficult or it's too costly. It can be too expensive or think, too difficult to yeah. follow through. And that is true if you apply it to patents. Mm because patents are very, very specific type of intellectual property. And right back to us sort of thinking, well, why is it that only 10 or 15% of people think that IP is uh, you know, of relevance to them? It's because they're all associated with patents. Mm. And the cost issue of, of, of getting a patent also is where the, a lot of the sort of baggage comes from. Um, do not try and write a patent by yourself. <laughs> the reason why you, you know, and, and I've filed for patents in the past as well, and I've always used an IP attorney. And I do that for a very deliberate reason. And that is, you've got to remember that you need somebody to be able to describe technically what you're doing, but they also need to describe it using legal language. And they also need to describe it in legal language. It means it's bulletproof for any future invention or derivative that comes from it. Hmm. So suddenly you've got three things that you're trying to do, each of which is difficult, neither of which you're actually an expert in yourself. And that's why IP attorneys exist, because they have got those skills. They can actually spot and write an, a patent application. And, you know, as a layman, you pick up a patent application, it's like double Dutch. You wouldn't understand how to read it. It's really heavy legal text to go through. If you file your own patent application, which you can do as well, but the chances are it's going to have, you, Holes you know, all over you, it. you'll drive a coach and horses through it. Yeah. So what's the point? So if you engage 
an IP attorney, you write a patent application, you file a patent application, you need to be thinking of somewhere between five to 20 grand to cover the legal costs of actually achieving that. Now, obviously it's the gold standard. It gives you 20 years protection to, to commercialize. So if it's a big enough marketplace, if you're gonna make a big enough sort of uh, revenue from this, then you can justify owning or spending 20 grand. You can even ask some of your investors to fund some of those. So, um, yeah. well, Guy, we were talking to Guy Weaver from Petura, and he was explaining that banks are now producing products that lend against yep. intellectual property. So that's an can... that's an initiative that we, as the intellectual property office, have been pushing for some time. Because hmm. if you think about the fact that you know eighty four percent of the value of the business is in intangible in assets, then it's possible for you to actually want to borrow money to grow this business and not have any assets tangible assets to borrow against. So how do you borrow against those intangible assets? And that's a problem that we've been trying to solve for some time. And you know, we're, we're, we're working with uh, the British Business Bank and with the Treasury mm -hmm. to try and figure out what can we do to try and make lending easier against intangible assets? How can we actually use things like registered patents, registered trademarks and say, well, obviously that's of value to the company. Will you lend us against those particular assets and what they represent? And there's some lenders that are starting to recognize that's a, a ground that they need to be addressing. It's a mindset thing, isn't it? For well, the if they don't address it, then they themselves are losing out on all that opportunity of all the creativity of all those fantastic startups that can grow and can create some real revenue, hmm. but they need some sort of finance to unlock that. And if, if, if they turn down that finance because, oh, well, you haven't got any buildings to lend this against, yeah, but I never will have any buildings to lend this against. So how do I find money to actually make this happen? Hmm. So that's two. Let's two. talk about the others. One of the issues uh, with, with patents is that you need to actually be the first one to tell the world about it. And that quite often can fall foul with inventors, especially in the early days when you're trying to do a, a co-design with, with your marketplace and you have to attract them by telling them what you're trying to do. And suddenly you've disclosed to the world so no longer can you file a patent, mm -hmm. oh dear. What you can try to file instead is something we call a registered design. You don't have to have prior dis uh, the problem of prior disclosure. Registered design isn't how things work, but it is what they look like. So often you can actually file a registered design. Again, relatively cheap. You know, uh, similar sort of level as, as trademarks in terms of, I think it's 50 quid for an individual design. Uh, you can file that yourself. You don't need a patent attorney to do it. There's simple uh, you know, rules that, that we publish on the website, explain what a registered design looks like, and you can just carry on filing all of those. So that's going back to being simple, simple low cost. Low cost. You can do it yourself. Yeah. Um, so those are three categories. Yeah. Interestingly, those are the only three categories that effectively will cost you anything to register. Two other things that we mentioned... One was uh, copyright, another one was trade secrets. Yeah. Both of those, you create them at the time that you create them. You don't have to prove that you own them because you own them by default. So actually, you get them as intellectual property for free. It doesn't cost you anything whatsoever. The question is what you do with them, how you continue to own them, and how you exploit them, and how you leverage your position with other people. Um, copyright is an absolute classic case in point. Look at the look at the creative industry. The whole of the creative industry is built on the laws of copyright. Mm -hmm. 
so whenever uh, our friend J.K. Rowling decides to write, you know, seven different books for a guy called Harry Potter, if you open the inside flyleaf of any of those books, you'll see a little line that says she asserts her copyright ownership as a legal uh, author of this particular works with a date beside it with a, a little C in a mm-hmm. circle. Yeah. All she's doing is to say, hey guys, listen world, I created this. You know, don't copy it or there may be consequences. So you know, if you look at, you look at J.K. Rowling, you say, well, how many millions is she actually worth? And the reason she's worth those millions is because of her creativity. And all of that is founded on copyright law. Her ability to license as a, uh, the basis of a script for, for a, you know, a screenplay yeah. or, or you know, taking it to Hollywood. She can prove she wrote the original copy. She can prove she wrote the original. Not only that, but whatever then is created as a script going forward, if she was involved in writing the script adaptation, mm-hmm. that is a separate works in its own right. Right. So she again can actually own that particular piece of it. Whenever it then is taken to film, the way the shots are laid out, the you know how people direct the film is again a creative capability, a creative protected by copyright. So all of that industry is totally founded on copyright. And you say, well, that's great, but you know, as a little startup business, copyright doesn't really apply to me, does it? Absolutely, because just like trademarks. I can guarantee that every single business is creating copyright. Simplest piece of copyright, who wrote your website? Did you write the words on your website? Yeah. (laughs) If you wrote the words on your website, then you own the copyright in those words. Mm -hmm. If one of your... Or all the collateral that we have for the mentoring program, for example. All of that. Yeah. Whoever wrote that is the the owner of it. (laughs) Ah, that's interesting. You own it or does your company own it? Oh, that's a very good question. If this was, if I was an entrepreneur and I owned the business and I wrote the content, then the business and I are the same thing, unless I sell it. Think about somebody that, for instance, runs a copywriting business. So they are employed by a client mm. in order to create copy. And somehow, copy. There's might probably be something in employment who, contracts that who, cover who this. Who owns that copy? Yeah. Well, whoever owns that copy is determined by the contract between the copywriter and the client. Yeah. And a lot of copywriters don't realize that just because somebody paid you to do something doesn't mean that they own it. You so could, there's a contract between... You could write your contracts as a copywriter that says, you know, I will license you to use this copyright for the purposes that we've actually determined mm-hmm. within the contract that we're at, but I continue to be the rightful owner of the copyright associated with it. And you might want to do that as a copywriter for a particular good reason. That is, you don't want them subsequently paying you top and tapony and mm-hmm. going off and using it absolutely everywhere mm-hmm. or even using it for purposes that you didn't Yeah, you didn't or it takes off, yeah. you know, if it's a brand <laughs> slogan or something. Uh, and that equally applies to uh, uh, people who are commissioned to do f- photographs. You know, the number mm. of people that I speak to who are a one-man band yeah. with photographs and say, well, that is my business. I'm paid to take photographs. So whenever I'm paid to do the photograph, clearly I should hand that over. Um, no, you don't have to. You can hand over the usage of it, but not the ownership of it. A great case was a guy who, he's created his own business as being a photographer of skateboarders. And you can think, well, actually, it's not that easy to take photographs, good photographs of people skateboarding. Mm-hmm. You know, getting in the right place, yeah. getting you know, it framed correctly, getting Clear. it without, yeah. you know, as a stop motion. So he's created himself a nice little niche as being the person to go to 
for skateboarding photographs. So clearly, if you are a manufacturer of skateboarders, then you're going to want to use his stuff and you're willing to pay for his stuff to actually promote your skateboards. Mm -hmm. And that's how he makes his money. However, he also posts all of his stuff on Instagram in order to promote who he actually is. So who's copying his Instagram? Is anybody using the images off his Instagram? You know, illicitly, in mm -hmm. effect. And he's got a great, uh, a, um, a great way of watching who's watching him on his Instagram accounts and seeing if his images have been posted elsewhere. It's easy if he's in the skateboarding community because he's so well connected to it. And if an individual skateboarder borrows one of his images and reposts it on an Instagram, his attitude is, that's great because it continues to promote me. It's my own marketing. Mm -hmm. People are marketing my behalf. However, if it's a brand owner, an equipment producer, borrowing those images, well, actually, that's fundamental to how he makes his money. So there's an instance where one of the biggest uh, um, producers, and this is public domain information, so I'm not actually breaking any confidence, one of the uh, 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 manufacturers of some skateboarding equipment reposted on Instagram one of his Instagram things, but didn't attribute it to him. So he picked them up on it, went back and said, um, I noticed that you used one of my images. Yeah. The cost of using that image, reposting it on Instagram, was $25. So if you'd like to just pay me the $25 for it. The big brand said, oh, who pays anything for Instagram images? You know, go away. You're only a tiny little tin pot. We're not going to pay you that. And he said, but you knew it was my image because you actually searched on my account in order to get the image of high enough quality to repost it on your Instagram. So you clearly understood my engagements, my terms of engagement. So you really do need to pay the $25. Oh, no, no, we're not going to bother doing that. He got back and forward several conversations. It was obvious they weren't going to pay it. The consequence was they started to lose sales left, right, and center. Because all he had to do on his own Instagram was to say, I've been having this problem with such and such a brand. They're clearly not playing by the game. Mm -hmm. None of the skateboarders bought a kit. Any longer. For $25? Yeah, for $25. So he had a way of understanding he was the rightful owner of that copyright. How do I take that and put that into effect within my strategy of how I make money? Mm -hmm. And a lot of the time with intellectual property, people think that it's about spending money to protect. And my strongest sort of message, especially with most sort of startups, most smaller sort of businesses, is know what you've actually got and know what you're trying to do with it and then build whatever processes are most appropriate for protecting and exploiting those assets. And if that means spending money to gain the rightful legal ownership and a patent mm -hmm. or whatever, by all means do that. But not, you don't have to do that in order to actually take some action on protecting your intellectual property. Yeah. Copyright is for free. It's how you use it. So what's your processes that you're adopting? Summary of the last category, which was Trade secrets. Yeah. There is now legislation passed in China, US, and Europe that means if you are proven to actually own a trade secret, and there's certain steps that you have to take to show that it is your trade secret, and you find somebody that infringes that, you can actually take them to court now. There is legislation passed in all three jurisdictions that means show that it belongs to you, show that they've impacted on you and what the commercial impact is on you, and now you've got the legal basis to protect that. Um, trade secrets is great. You own it by default. Mm -hmm. But again, how do you make sure that that's not shared willingly? If you have people like software engineers working for you, 
Well, mm, right. So if they then go off and work for somebody else, do they take their knowledge of my <laughs> trade secrets? You can't unknow something. You can't unknow something, no. But what you can do is you can make sure that the contract of their employment, they are clear that that knowledge should not be shared outside of the organization. And you know, when people say it costs too much to protect IP, no, all you need is one clause in an employment contract, and that covers the whole of your sort of trade secrets, mm-hmm. which can be a massive part of what your intellectual value is. So we've really touched upon some of the, the costs to not, <laughs> yeah. um, not having an IP strategy or uh, protections in, yeah. in place. So Nike, obviously a great example, the skateboard brand. Um, you know, so I think it's, uh, it's, I think there's a clear opportunity there. Um, but what are some of the other costs for getting it wrong for the entrepreneurs? Well, you know, the, it, it, so that's what happens if somebody's protected it and yeah. impacts someone else. But what if they don't protect it? Like, well, you run the risk clearly that it, it, you know, all of you spent the last ten or fifteen years of your life actually creating. Mm. It's possible for a gorilla to walk into your party and take away your lunch. And what can you do about it? Well, if you haven't thought about that circumstance possibly going to happen, and you haven't thought about what those risks are, and you haven't put in place a way to mitigate those risks then you're probably your own worst enemy. Mm. Uh, a lot of the time, uh, you know, some of the businesses that I've been involved with, a lot of my sort of thinking has been, right, we're about to create something that is going to be revolutionary. It's a disruptive technology applied into a whole new industry. Um, if this really is going to be disruptive and it's going to change the whole rules of the game, then obviously you're going to have other organizations going to be interested in trying to copy what we do. Yes. So on what basis do you defend against them actually copying? What is your competitive advantage and how do you make that competitive advantage sustainable? Mm-hmm. And quite often using intellectual property, either with registration or with other processes that actually you know, stewards them properly, means that you can keep your competitive advantage sustainable for a much longer period of time. You start to think, well, so what revenue am I making this year? If I was able to carry on that revenue for the next Three years, how much is that worth to me? If I could carry that on for the next seven years, how much is that extra worth to me? Well, that extra four years, and how much is it going to cost me to either register or to just do some internal processes of how I'm stewarding this to guarantee that I will actually have that continued revenue? So it's more about investing in your intellectual property rather than the cost, because yeah. we keep talking about the cost of intellectual property, but it's actually investing in it as a Well, the problem, the problem is most people, when they look at intellectual property, just mm. look at the cost column within the, within the balance sheet. Mm. Yeah. Oh, it's co- going to cost me that to protect it. What they're not looking at is the other side of the equation, which is, so what Not is value. the revenue? What is the profitability? What is the return on investment associated with that investment? Yeah. So where else would you actually not look at what the return on investment is before you decide to do an investment? Yeah. You don't do it in any other category of asset associated with a business. So why is it that when it comes to intellectual property, we leave our brains at the door and we think it's only about the actual <laughs> cost associated with it? It's not. <laughs> and if, if intellectual property becomes the foundation of the business, how can you ever create a business strategy if you haven't taken into account intellectual property? Mm. Do you have to, um, you know, because we've talked a lot about, especially when it comes to patents, they are costly, other things are less costly, and then some are free. But do you have to actually get the protections, or is it, is it a mix of planning for it? Or Yeah, um, the best, 
this isn't the case of you should go for one versus the other. Yeah. Do we all have more than one? You, yeah, and it's possible to it's possible to protect something with several different t versions of intellectual property. So it's possible to actually you know invent something that you could patent, but actually don't patent all of the invention. Keep back some of that information as a as trade secret. Trade secret. Also cover it if there's a bit of software associated with it. Cover it with copyright law on your software. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So then you, so, well, so this particular sort of technical capability is fundamental about business. I've now got three different ways I've got protection. Oh, by the way, also I'll, st I'll give it a name in how I market it. Now you've got four different ways you can protect it. So if somebody decides to come and do something similar to you or call it something similar yeah. or follow the similar sort of process or use some of your know-how associated with it, you've got four different ways to actually try and do something about it. And often with a good with a good sort of intellectual property strategy. It's a case of knowing that you've got all of these different cards you can play. And depending on who it is that's come and parked their tanks on your lawn, hmm. then you can decide which one you're going to use. Um, and the other thing people tend to get wrong is believing that their first course of action is to take the guys to court. That's probably the last course of action you want to follow. Um, I had an instance with a, with, with a client who had created a really interesting piece of video software using an educational context. And they had been started to be recognized by other people in this field. That's a really good way of doing this. And they ended up having a conversation with me and said, well, we've, we've become aware of the fact that one of the government departments in Australia has recognized our particular way of doing things and have actually cited that as good practice, but they never spoke at all to us associated with it. So how do we stop them doing that? And my first question to them is, why do you want to stop them? What is it that you're trying to achieve as a business? Are you, are you expecting yourselves to go and sell now to Australia within the next 12 months? No. Well, if you did want to sell to Australia, how would you go about doing that? Well, I'd need to find somebody in Australia. True. You've now got somebody that's put their hands up in Australia and says they're interested in it and think it's great. So instead of sending a cease and desist and getting the lawyers onto it, give them a little phone call, thank them for acknowledging who you actually are and offer to work with them to integrate your techniques in what they're trying to achieve. And suddenly you've got a licensed partner, you've mm. got a franchise partner, you've got a new whole new market that you didn't have the resources to do first of all and you'll have all of the revenue stream associated with that coming so don't think about cease and desist. Think about how does this fit as to what I'm trying to achieve as a business? What does this particular infringement mean to my business? Who is it that's infringing me? Where are they, where are they going to come from? How, how is there space for us to actually fit together? And quite often you'll find infringements, they're not by malintent. Quite often it's because people just don't realize. Mm. It's very common for people to infringe you without even realizing. Even as a trademark. Yeah, you know, people don't think to check. People don't, don't, don't think to check. So if you know, put, put yourself in their shoes, if they have done it without any intention and suddenly the first time they've ever heard of you is a legal letter, then immediately they're going to think that it's a combative mode. Mm -hmm. If the first time they ever hear of you is, is a thanks very much, you realize that we are the guys that actually created that. You know, and we're really interested in trying to find other people that know what this can do. Yeah. Then suddenly the relationship's different. And if IP is about exploitation more than protection, 
that's your path to exploitation. It's back to looking at it again as looking uh, at it as a business as a business asset used for what your objectives are as an organization. Okay. So let's look at the future then. We've got the advent of machine learning, Internet of Things, artificial intelligence, facial recognition, all that kind of all this crazy future tech that's that's gonna be coming. It's actually already here. We're already yeah. surrounded by it. Um, what role does intellectual property play in all of that myriad of new tech? I had a great phrase uh, the other day. This is um, the factory of the future is going to be run by one man and his dog. Yeah, <laughs> the man's there to feed the dog. The dog's there to stop the man tampering with, tampering with the equipment. <laughs> <laughs> and actually, you know, if, if you think about it, yeah. you know, the, a lot of the automation that we're, we're coming to is getting towards that sort of stage. You know, it's possible now, if you've ever been to Amazon's warehouses, you know, mm. it's got very few people in it now. The people are there. The only reason there's people still in the warehouses is because we haven't quite figured out how to do some of those processes that only humans Silly. can do. Yeah. But it won't be long before we actually figure those out as well, in which case it all becomes automated. Right, so where's intellectual property in this game? Well, again, that's where a lot of the value is actually being created. So whoever's designed those processes, they designed them. Who owns the design? That's an intellectual asset. The great thing about intellectual property is, you know, it goes back to 16-whatever when it was first sort of created as patents. It's been proven over the years that it's a robust system that is actually fit for purpose, irrespective of what the technology is that's coming through. So every time there's a new wave of new technology, we as intellectual property office go back and say, well, is there any, is there any sort of rules of the game as to how this works that might change the way intellectual property helps innovation happen? And we keep on coming back and saying, well, no, it's just a piece of technology. And we're already covered by that in either you know, a piece of copyright software, you know, artificial intelligence is a classic case, here we are, we're using artificial intelligence, nothing more than smarter algorithms. They're already covered by software copyrights. Mm -hmm. If it does something physically and is an invention and is covered by patents, it's still equally applicable. Yeah. You know, if it works, if the machine learning works on a data set, who owns that data set? And is the owner of that data set authorized for it to actually be used? You know, whoever owns the data set, they own the database, they own the copyright in those databases. Have they authorized for it to be used that way? So the legislative basis yeah. of intellectual property is just equally as valid in this new technology area. One thing that people don't quite recognize, and hopefully it'll be the case coming, is if that's where all the value is being created, it's back to the argument that says, you know, everybody owns intellectual property. To start realizing that's where all the value is being created, who owns those assets? Who controls those assets? Who, who stewards them? How do they exploit those mm. capabilities? It's all back into this, well, what's my intellectual property plan? Yeah. How's the strategy that I'm actually going through? So if you're working in Internet of Things, if you're working in AI or data, one of the things that we've actually recognized is that as new technologies come through, we keep looking as intellectual property office to make sure that you know, our regime is still applicable into the sort of context. Fourth Industrial Revolution is, is effectively digital tech type of technologies, data type of uh, capabilities applied to you know, current production, current production techniques. 3D printing is an absolute case in point. So a lot of the questions behind that is, if that's where all the value now starts to be created, 
then those va that value is being created again by some sort of intellectual creativity. Put it within your overall plan of what you're trying to achieve. So rather than going off and starting to be really inventive with all of your customers all of the time, think, well, whose benefit is, is this work happening for? How can I steward this such that that incentivizes me to be the one that's actually commercially benefiting from it? So actually, future tech and all of those technologies we're talking about actually just further highlights the importance of intellectual property Absolutely. in future market opportunities. Yeah. And one, one, of the, one of the developments I find really interesting that's happened over the last period of time is we talk about things like open source software. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. So you get people sort of saying, oh, well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to protect this. I'm going to make this open source software or yeah. I'm going to use open source software because it's free. And there's a lot of innovation that comes off the back of that. Absolutely. So many things. Is Linux not built on open source software? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. One of the things that people don't tend to recognize is there's no such thing as a free lunch. <laughs> so what are the consequences of using this free inverted commas software? And stuff like Linux, if you, if you want to go back and look at some of the contracts that you undertake in order to be able to have access to the use of their software, you're about to create a business to do something that nobody else knows what to do. And you might add a bit of coding on top of mm -hmm. an open source software. One of the consequences of an open source license is that whatever you then create, you have to turn over your intellectual property rights to it. Oh, yeah. So that you have to also be open source. Don't you, you have to make that totally open source. Mm. So then that says, right, so you now can't actually decide that you're using all of can't these tools it. and you keep this little bit secret. Because your obligation for using those tools is that you also make that totally publicly open. So then that asks the opposite question, which is, so if that, who owns the value? Yeah. Because I'm now letting everybody else have equal access to my value. And if I'm about to create a business to do something that somebody else has, hasn't done, if I'm using open source software, I'm about to tell my competitor completely upfront how to do it as well. I think we could probably get into a theoretical conversation about Tim Berners-Lee and the World Wide Web and the fact that he gave it to us all and all that kind of well, that's fun different, stuff. You know, but that's the principle of open source as well, isn't it? Well, it, you know, that's different. He open sourced the Even internet. if you look at Tesla, <laughs> if you look at Tesla yeah. and what Elon Musk is doing, where he's turned over all of his intellectual property rights, he's recognized that actually he's doing that for a very clear commercial purpose. He knows that he's got a strong enough lead in electric vehicles that really now wants to be the stage where the whole electric vehicle market grows. Yeah. The fastest way of doing that is to get Help all the competitors to come into his marketplace yeah. for him to actually lead on. So yeah. he's saying to them, oh, here you are, here's how you do it. And he's doing that deliberately to encourage people to come in to make the pie bigger that he continues to have a big share of. Mm -hmm. So you know, he's not doing it for any you know, ulterior motive. Yeah. You know, he's doing it selfishly because he recognized the value of those intellectual assets. That's an absolute classic where people misjudge what it is that open source is about mm -hmm. and how you actually commercially make money even though you own the protection associated with an intellectual property. I want to touch on just one final thing before we wrap up. Surely Brexit will have a major impact on intellectual property and how it works for us now. Maybe, maybe not. The first thing to say is the Intellectual Property Office is one of those government agencies that has already issued guidance as to what the impact would be for a no deal. So we've effectively said, well, what will be the impact of a no deal on intellectual property? The one thing to put in context is intellectual property is actually a global phenomenon. It's not a European phenomenon. 
countries right across the world all recognize what intellectual property is and have got different stages of, of them actually implementing something equivalent to what we have as an intellectual property office. Bear in mind that the first ever intellectual property office was the UK one. Mm-hmm. So we have got a very unique position globally in that an awful lot of other intellectual property offices recognize that it's us that are effectively at the forefront that are setting some of the terms. So whenever it comes to something like the European Patent Office, it's founded on the same principles of the UK office because the UK office came first. Not only that, but it actually predates the EU. So if you have a patent, the regime that actually applies to a patent is a regime that predated the EU. Okay. Is it changed by the EU? Not a great deal. Does it change some of the procedures by which how you go about applying? Well, one of the things that you realize is things like the Madrid Protocol, um, the PCT, all of those treaties that underpin intellectual property on an international basis are bigger than the EU. Right. There are a few exceptions. Patents is cleaner. But the other two intellectual property rights that are registered are trademarks Mm -hmm. and registered designs. Trademarks are affected by European legislation because they are within laws that have been passed under the EU framework that have then been passed in all individual sort of countries. Um, So at the moment, before Brexit, it's possible to apply for a trademark in any member state and then for it actually being upgraded to all member states as a European patent uh, trademark. That wouldn't necessarily be the case with a UK trademark. So whereas a European trademark prior to Brexit would by default apply to the UK, after Brexit it wouldn't. So what you find at the, at, is happening at the moment is we've got an increase in UK-specific trademark applications by people that already have a European trademark because what they're doing is belt and braces. They're saying, I don't know which way Brexit's going to go. Mm-hmm. In fact, it doesn't matter. For 170 I'll have, quid. I'll have, for 170 quid, I'll have it in the UK as well, yeah. even though at the moment I don't need that. But if Brexit goes that way, then I've got that as well. Mm-hmm. So belts and braces, uniquely getting yourself coverage. Copyright laws, again, tend to be under European legislation. But if you're at all sort of concerned about any of those particular things and what the implications are associated with it, that's where the guidance that we've got as to what the no deal will look like mm-hmm. is worth actually looking at. So it's one of quite a few resources that are on the Intellectual yep. Property Office um, website. And I'm no doubt that um, anybody starting out in business um, <laughs> would welcome some top tips from me and in terms of things that they okay. need to be thinking about and doing. And I'm imagine some of those things might exist on that. Um, yeah, the, um, the UK IPO website, so it's www.ipo.gov.uk. Try and remember that difficult web address. <laughs> um, it's actually a really good resource because on there we've got loads of case studies. We've got explanations about all the different uh, intellectual property rights, what they look like, where they're applicable, how you go about applying for them. You can even apply for them all online. We've got loads of resource that can actually hold your hand through the whole that process, educate you on what those actually are, um, show you what the implications are, how you fit it into your business, how you go about creating a business plan associated with it. An awful lot of self-help. So mm-hmm. if, if you start to get to the stage where you think, 
actually, this intellectual property is something I really need to get my head around. I hope every listener is already thinking that at the end of this podcast. <laughs> Literally, pop, on, pop onto the website. There's a tab on there called IP for Business. And in there, you'll find loads and loads of resources. Um, two particular tools that are worth looking at. There's a tool that we call IP Equip. What that basically does is it walks you through the different types of intellectual property rights, what they are, how they work. So absolute ABC of intellectual property. Another tool that we call IP Health Check. So if you're ready in business, you're ready running a business, go and look at IP Health Check. It has a whole series of questions, prompting questions that that you answer depending on what your situation is. And from that gives you written guidance as to what sort of course of action you should follow next. So if you're in the situation where, you know, somebody's infringed your trademark and their trademark isn't registered, mm-hmm. what they do next? Well, there's a section on IP health check called enforcement. It'll actually say, okay, yeah. what are the implications now? How should I go about doing this? Should I issue a legal, legal you know, cease and yeah. desist letter? Should I approach them? How do I go about mediating? All of that sort of stuff. So really good, useful resources. The other thing to think about is it's always possible. You know, there's loads of legally qualified IP attorneys out there. The truth is they are the experts when it comes to the law. So while, while you can teach yourself a lot from the IPO website, if you get to the stage where actually I now really need somebody that I'm going to pay in order to actually look after my interests, uh, Right. What do you want to do? How do you, do you, is it worth paying for them or not? Well, clearly you want to actually then go and have a, a chat to an IP attorney. Virtually all IP attorneys will give you that first hour for free yeah, on a pro bono service. So that's them trying to get their heads around what you're actually about to tell them to then decide whether or not they're going to make any money from you or whether they can actually help you. Uh, there's nothing to say that, same as walking into a car dealership and looking at three different models and deciding which one's the best. There's nothing to stop you walking into three different IP attorney's offices and saying, okay, this is what I've got. What do you recommend? What can you do for me? And then deciding which one you're going to buy thereafter. Yeah. And of course, they're not all the same because somebody that is a, a patent lawyer in pharmaceutical and you bring along this medical device that you've created. Okay, well, it might be both NHS, but you know, they know about pharmaceuticals. They don't know about medical devices. Mm-hmm. You know, or you take them a piece of software to do with you know, a process in, in, in automotive manufacture. A pharmaceutical IP attorney won't even know where to go on that. Yeah. So be clear about the type of profile of IP attorney you want to work with. Uh, effectively have your hit list of, well, what is it that I'm actually trying to do? Mm-hmm. What advice am I looking for? And how would I determine one versus the other is the best to use? Use your free pro bono to actually do that. And I gave that advice to one of our startups last week when I was chatting to him on the phone Mm -hmm. based on your advice uh, or suggestion, not advice. (laughs) Um, So he's taken that on board. He'd been to see one and I said, no, you can go and see. You can see as many as you want. Yeah. Like they'll give you the first hour for free. Yeah. Uh, Sorry, and be- IP and bear lawyers mind, everywhere. Know, a, a, lot of, a lot of IP attorneys will only... This will only do IP lawyers good. There will be lots of other people asking about IP. <laughs> yeah. And then there's one other resource which I find the most surprising when you first told me about it. Yeah. Um, we recognize that intellectual property office that you know, IP lawyers themselves, when you go and engage them, can be expensive as well because that's just the legal protection, you know, the legal profession. At the other end, you know, the IPO website gives you really good basic information, but there's sort of, well, what do you do in that middle ground? 
So uh, for several years now, what we've done as intellectual property office is we have trained advisors um, who we pay for that are placed in all of the major libraries. So it's possible to walk into the library in central Manchester, you know, library in central Liverpool, um, any of those big central libraries, and they will have a business and IP advice center. They will have folks in there. They're not IP lawyers, but they're people that are trained by us to know where to point you, how to give you advice, even to help you. For instance, if you, if you decide that you've, uh, you want to register a trademark, they will be able to help you search the trademark register to see whether somebody's already registered something like that. So it'll save you a whole stack of money mm. and a process you don't understand yourself. So they can actually run clinics. They can do one-on-one -on -one advice to help entrepreneurs who are not quite sure yet whether they want to spend all of their money directly with an IP attorney. I think that's a nice, you know, a bit of hand-holding that bit can hand be done holding. and get you past that first, if yeah. once you've been on Only the problem site. is... They're very busy. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, libraries, you're about to get busier. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Sometimes it can, it, it can take time to get access to some of these guys yeah. because literally there's so many people yeah. that recognize that they can get help there. They will run you know, clinics. They uh, do. They will run group sessions uh, to, to, to brief people. So it might not be one-on-one -on -one support initially, but there are some folks there that are suitably trained, suitably uh, uh, experience to be able to actually guide you mm -hmm. as to how you go about registering IP. Can you do it yourself? How do I find an IP lawyer? Um, yeah, he's uh, a good one. He does my area. Yeah, yeah um, there's a register, uh, the CIP, CIPA, Chartered Institute of Patent Attorneys. Look that up on Google. CI SITMA, Chartered Institute Trademark Attorneys, separate register. Look up those. They will actually put in your postcode, whatever, Give you a whole list of qualified, verified, verified Great. on the register, what they do. local to you, who they are, where they work, what the name of the firm is, what their postal address is, their phone numbers. Brilliant. So if you want to think, well, yes, I've got this this trademark I want to register. Yeah. I uh, don't really want to do it myself. Um, maybe I should use somebody to actually help me do that. Where can I find my nearest trademark attorney? Bang, Go to the stick register. it in Google. They'll Brilliant. give you a list of whoever within the nearest five five miles and go and have a chat with them. Brilliant. Ian, thank you so much for bringing this very difficult subject to life. I think I've really enjoyed the, the stories and kind of relate it, make it more relatable to, to us all. We hope that's answered some of your intellectual property questions or actually helped you think about the questions that you need to be asking yourself. And if you have any more questions around this very interesting topic, please pop on to iTunes, onto SoundCloud, leave your reviews, leave your questions, and we'll continue to answer those questions to help you get a better night's sleep. Thank you. Okay, thank you very much.